This episode features discussion of suicide that may be offensive to some listeners. Discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. On the morning of June 26, 2013, two police cars drove through a crowd of reporters waiting outside a mansion in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. Excitement grew as the cruisers parked in the driveway. Cameramen focused their lenses, filming as uniform-clad officers got out and walked silently to the mansion's front door. Reporters stood at the ready, holding microphones while the officers knocked loudly on the front door. Inside, New England Patriots tight end Aaron Hernandez knew exactly who the knock was from and what they were here to do. Hernandez had been dreading this moment, hoping against hope that the evidence against him wouldn't be enough and the police investigation would go away. But Hernandez wasn't so lucky. The officers continued knocking. Hernandez rose and walked heavily to the front door, a strange sense of acceptance washing over him. Today was the day he'd finally face consequences for all that he'd done. After Hernandez finally opened the door, an officer raised a pair of handcuffs and informed him that he was under arrest for the murder of his friend, Odin Lloyd. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. This is our second episode on Aaron Hernandez, the star NFL player whose career went from Super Bowl championships to life behind bars. Last week, we covered Hernandez's early life, his entry into the NFL, and his early criminal behavior. This week, we'll explore how his life collapsed in the aftermath of a senseless murder. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? 
Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. When 23-year-old Aaron Hernandez returned to the New England Patriots for spring workouts in 2013, he was determined to be better than ever. He worked to get as healthy as possible, rehabbing from injuries and an off-season surgery. The previous season had been disappointing, but he would make the next the best of his career. But off the football field, Hernandez was constantly turning his head around, paranoid that his friend Alexander Bradley would stab him in the back. Bradley had been one of Hernandez's close friends through both his college and NFL careers, but everything changed in the summer of 2012 when the two of them committed a double homicide. Although they'd gotten away with it, Hernandez became suspicious and mentally unstable, believing that Bradley would turn him in. So in February of 2013, after an argument inside a Miami nightclub, Hernandez shot Bradley in the head and left him by the side of the road, thinking he was dead. Unfortunately for Hernandez, Bradley survived and vowed revenge. Hernandez spent the spring of 2013 in California, hoping Bradley's threats would calm, but they didn't. When he returned to New England in May, he believed he was walking into an extremely dangerous situation. At the suggestion of his head coach, Hernandez bought an apartment in the town of Franklin, Massachusetts. The apartment was a short drive from both Gillette Stadium and his home in North Attleboro, where his fiancée, Shayana Jenkins, and daughter lived. It was supposed to act as his safe house, but instead, Hernandez used the apartment to blow off steam. He frequently invited friends over for drug-fueled parties that often lasted deep into the night, and it's likely that the drugs fueled a vicious cycle of escapism and crippling anxiety. Meanwhile, Hernandez tried to keep Bradley at bay by negotiating a possible payout. He knew that Bradley needed money more than he needed revenge. But as the calendar shifted to June 2013, the negotiations went south. Bradley wanted $5 million from Hernandez, but Hernandez refused to go any higher than 1.5. On June 13, 2013, Alexander Bradley filed a federal lawsuit seeking damages from Hernandez for assault. Four days later, however, the case was dismissed due to a paperwork error. The drama had severe consequences for Hernandez's motivation on the field. Bill Belichick and the other coaches could tell that Hernandez wasn't the same hardworking, competitive player they'd had the year before. He was on edge, constantly paranoid and acting out. Just like Urban Meyer and the University of Florida, Belichick and the Patriots worried that Hernandez was becoming more trouble than he was worth. In mid-June, Belichick finally yelled at Hernandez for showing up late to practice. Trying to motivate Hernandez with tough love, Belichick told Hernandez that this season was his last chance to pull his life together, or else the team would cut him. Hernandez tried not to be worried about his place in football. He believed that if the Patriots cut him, he'd find another team easily. So he focused on his life off the field, spending more time with old criminal friends from Bristol. But his paranoia only grew. Soon, he hired a bodyguard, 41-year-old ex-convict Ernest Wallace. Hernandez also hung out with his cousin's roommate, another ex-con, Carlos Ortiz. 
Finally, he topped off his entourage with a 27-year-old semi-pro football player named Odin Lloyd. Lloyd sometimes acted like Hernandez's assistant, performing both mundane tasks like going grocery shopping and illegal ones like buying drugs and guns. The three men smoked marijuana, played video games, and went out to nightclubs together. And for some time, this distracted Hernandez. But all of this activity then made his paranoia grow even worse. In the summer of 2013, Hernandez's mental state deteriorated. He couldn't think about anything other than anxiety and fear. His mood swings were intense and more vicious. He kept weapons nearby at all times, constantly on edge. His worst fears came true when, just after midnight on June 15th, Hernandez went out with Odin Lloyd to a Boston nightclub. After some heavy drinking, Hernandez and Lloyd got into a vicious argument. The details were never revealed, but it's assumed that Hernandez realized that Lloyd knew something about him and threatened to spill. That secret could have been that four months earlier, Hernandez had shot his old friend Alexander Bradley in the head, and that Bradley, who survived, was now seeking revenge. Or it could have been Hernandez and Bradley's double homicide in Boston the previous summer. Whatever it was, Hernandez was willing to do anything to keep that hidden. On June 16, 2013, Hernandez sent a text to his bodyguard, Ernest Wallace, and his friend, Carlos Ortiz. He wrote, You can't trust anyone anymore, before asking the two of them to meet him later. The two arrived at his house after midnight, and Hernandez told them that he had something he needed help with. Owen Lloyd had to be killed. Next, Hernandez texted Lloyd and invited him to hang out that night. When Lloyd replied yes, Hernandez, Ortiz, and Wallace took a rental car to Lloyd's South Boston home. It was after two in the morning when they picked him up and drove back towards Hernandez's house in North Attleboro. While Aaron Hernandez drove, he was psyching himself up to kill. He was drunk, high, and not thinking clearly. But he likely felt his own life depended on the end of Lloyd's. Lloyd, meanwhile, sat in the back seat, texting his sister. He asked if she knew who he was with, and she said no. Lloyd responded with simply, NFL. And at 3.23 a.m., he texted her back, adding, just so you know. Whether he was bragging or leaving a trail is unknown. A few minutes after Lloyd sent his final text, Wallace pulled off the road, parking at an empty industrial park more than a mile from Aaron Hernandez's mansion. Hernandez, Wallace, and Lloyd got out of the car to urinate. Hernandez pulled out a gun and shot Odin Lloyd six times, killing him. When we come back, Aaron Hernandez attempts to cover up his crimes. Now, back to the story. In June of 2013, 23-year-old Aaron Hernandez was one of the highest-paid tight ends in NFL history, preparing for the fall season with the New England Patriots. But his extracurricular activities had escalated from habitual drug use and partying to cold-blooded murder. In the early morning hours of June 17th, Aaron Hernandez shot and killed a member of his entourage, semi-pro player Odin Lloyd. 
Probably drunk and high, Hernandez made no attempt to hide the body, nor to pick up the shell casings he left behind. After firing the shots, he left Lloyd to die and got right back into the car. Hernandez drove his remaining entourage away from the scene, arriving back at Hernandez's house at approximately 3.30 a.m. As dawn broke, a more sober Hernandez began a clumsy cover-up operation. He went into his home's video surveillance system and tried to destroy footage of him going out the previous night. He called a service to clean his entire house and return the rental car. He instructed his fiancée to get rid of a box in the basement. She did exactly as he asked and didn't question him. That afternoon, a jogger found Odin Lloyd's body by the side of the road and called the police. By that afternoon, they'd put Aaron Hernandez's house under surveillance. When Hernandez saw a cop car parked outside his home, he grew more and more nervous. He called his agent to ask for advice. He said that police had parked outside of his house, but he disclosed nothing about the murder. The agent told him to go out to the cops and talk to them. After all, Hernandez hadn't done anything wrong. He should ask if they needed help. But when he approached the two detectives to see what they needed, they asked Hernandez questions like whether he'd recently rented a car and what his relationship was with Odin Lloyd. They told Hernandez they might need to search his house, and Hernandez snapped back. They weren't going in there. The officers thought Hernandez was nervous, defensive, and unhelpful. If there was any doubt in the detective's mind that Hernandez had anything to do with the murder of Odin Lloyd, it was erased in that conversation. The next morning, on June 18th, police cruisers swarmed Hernandez's house and officers thoroughly searched his property. By the end of the day, the investigation of prominent Patriots player Aaron Hernandez was front page news. The team wanted to get ahead of the story as best they could, so on June 19th, owner Robert Kraft brought him in to talk. He asked Hernandez, point blank, if he had anything to do with the murder of Odin Lloyd, and Hernandez said absolutely not. Somehow, that was good enough for the Patriots. Kraft decided there was no point in doing anything while the investigation was still ongoing, no matter how damning the evidence might seem. Besides, Hernandez was still their highly paid tight end. They didn't want to cut one of their biggest investments. Over the next few days, Hernandez's house was surrounded by journalists and cameramen, breathlessly reporting on the investigation. Many media figures and reporters already presumed that Hernandez was guilty, playing right into the stereotype of the violent thug NFL player. And in the midst of all this, Hernandez's old enemy, Alexander Bradley, saw an opportunity. On June 20th, Bradley filed another lawsuit against Hernandez for the gunshot wound, demanding $100,000. Meanwhile, Aaron Hernandez sat inside his house, stewing. He was in purgatory, under pressure from all sides, waiting to face the consequences of his actions. Hernandez decided to escape into the one place that had always kept him safe. He ignored the reporters as he got in his car and drove to Gillette Stadium, but when he tried to walk to the entrance of the field, members of Patriots management stopped him. The Patriots may not have accused him of being guilty, but as the news coverage became more pointed, 
They had decided they didn't want him anywhere near the team. Hernandez returned home, cut off from the sport he devoted his life to. Football had finally rejected him. Over the next few days, detectives gathered enough evidence against Hernandez to make a case. And on the morning of June 26, 2013, state police officers placed him under arrest. The NFL tight end surrendered without protest, and within an hour, the Patriots officially announced that they were releasing Aaron Hernandez. The team explained that it was the right thing to do, and Bill Belichick stated that he was personally disappointed and hurt by the turn of events. But privately, Belichick told the team that Aaron Hernandez's name was never to be spoken again. They had a more important thing to focus on, winning another championship. Patriots players remained radio silent, refusing to make any comments to reporters about Hernandez. His former teammates were more than happy to forget about the troubled tight end and move on. That afternoon, Hernandez was officially charged with first-degree murder, but he pleaded not guilty. The judge denied Hernandez bail and ordered him taken into custody. Hernandez was taken to the infamously strict Bristol County Jail to await trial. There, he was kept in isolation for his own protection. And despite the harsh surroundings, Hernandez's anxiety and paranoia managed to subside. In the summer of 2014, Hernandez was moved to the Suffolk County Jail in Boston, which gave him a bit more freedom. There, he began to come out of his shell. He made friends with some of his fellow inmates and played basketball games on the prison's rooftop court. He kept his cell clean, played solitaire, and read the Harry Potter books. Hernandez also kept up with his old team, watching Patriots games on TV in a common area. Hernandez felt no ill will towards the team or his former teammates, understanding why they refused to speak about him and moved on. He was hurt that the fans had entirely turned on him, but in 2015, when the Patriots beat the Seattle Seahawks in the Super Bowl, Hernandez cheered from his cell. On January 29, 2015, 26-year-old Aaron Hernandez's trial began. The prosecution had a mountain of evidence on its side. They presented text messages proving that Hernandez and Lloyd met that night and showed surveillance footage placing Hernandez's car at the scene of the crime. They had even recovered the home security footage that Hernandez had tried to delete and caught Hernandez walking back into his home with a gun in hand just minutes after Lloyd's death. They also found a shell casing in the rented Nissan Altima, one that matched the casings found at Lloyd's body. To make matters worse for Hernandez, the casing was covered in his DNA. But what the prosecution didn't have was the actual murder weapon or a clear motive. Nor did they call Ernest Wallace or Carlos Ortiz to the stand. They were each awaiting their own trials and couldn't yet be called as witnesses. Instead, they offered circumstantial evidence and character testimony, hoping to fill in the blanks. First, they questioned Shayana Jenkins, Hernandez's fiancée. While she spoke, Hernandez remained stoic and brooding, keeping his emotions hidden. Jenkins was curt and uncomfortable on the stand, answering the bare minimum of what was asked. But the prosecution got the answers they needed from her. She stated that Hernandez kept a gun in the house and that it disappeared after Lloyd's death. 
She also confirmed that that morning, Hernandez asked her to dispose of a box, though she did not look inside or ask what it contained. Next, they brought Alexander Bradley to the stand. They couldn't bring up that Hernandez had shot Bradley in the head as it was part of a different investigation, but they could use his testimony to portray Hernandez as volatile, unpredictable, and dangerous. Despite everything that had happened, Hernandez still irrationally hoped that Bradley would remain loyal and not go to the cops, but he was wrong. His friend turned enemy testified against him talking about Hernandez's drug use, violent tendencies, and nasty temper. Even if they couldn't prove a logical motive, they proved that Hernandez was the kind of person who could commit murder on impulse. Aaron Hernandez's defense attorneys didn't need to prove Hernandez's innocence. They just needed to create enough doubt in the jury's mind to not get a conviction. Instead of focusing on the evidence, Hernandez's lawyers pointed out the lack of motive offered by the prosecution and emphasized the nonsensical nature of the murder. Going further, the defense offered an alternative theory of the case, that the two other associates, Wallace and Ortiz, killed Lloyd, and Hernandez failed to stop them because he was afraid for his life. There was no real evidence for this theory, but the possibility highlighted the fact that the police had no firm, direct evidence to prove that Hernandez pulled the trigger. To cap their arguments, the defense brought a DNA expert to the stand. She testified that the DNA found on the shell casing could have been transferred from days-old chewed gum found stuck to it. The defense attorneys emphasized that just because Hernandez's DNA was on the shell casing, that didn't mean he had any contact with it. The defense rested, and the two sides made their closing arguments. The prosecution alleged that Hernandez murdered his friend out of irrational paranoia. The defense argued that Hernandez's friends, Wallace and Ortiz, committed the murder, and that Hernandez was intimidated into silence. The jury went into deliberations. Hernandez anticipated that the jury might take his side. He was an asset to the Patriots and thought the jury would want him back on the field. Just like in college, he hoped that he could escape legal consequences one last time. But this time, there was no university fixer who could make the charges go away. There was no NFL team so powerful that it could influence law enforcement. There were only 12 members of the jury deciding the fate of Aaron Hernandez's life. When we come back, Aaron Hernandez faces a verdict. Now back to the story. On April 15th, 2015, 25-year-old Aaron Hernandez re-entered the courtroom, thinking that the jury would have just enough doubt to acquit him of all charges for the murder of Odin Lloyd. He had lost everything. His lucrative contract with the Patriots, his football career, and even his reputation. Yet, standing in front of the judge, he was hopeful for a second chance. But after six days of deliberation, the jury had other plans. Hernandez was found guilty of all charges and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The courtroom erupted in cheers and clapping, but Hernandez's head dropped. He muttered the words wrong and unreal to himself. Behind him, his fiancée sobbed. 
He turned and mouthed the words, be strong, as he was placed in handcuffs, then escorted out of the room. Aaron Hernandez was sent to serve out his sentence at the Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center in Massachusetts, less than an hour's drive from Gillette Stadium. The prison was a far cry from the comfortable conditions in the Boston jail where he had been previously held. There were no rooftop basketball courts and no card games. Inmates were kept in their cells 20 hours a day. This time, Hernandez fell back into what he knew best, drugs and gangs. He had the words lifetime loyalty tattooed on his neck to prove himself to the bloods and was disciplined with solitary confinement numerous times. Because marijuana was hard to come by in prison, Hernandez began smoking K2, a synthetic drug known to cause hallucinations and psychosis. To the other inmates, Hernandez was a former NFL star they could pick on to prove their own toughness. The guards weren't much better, relentlessly taunting Hernandez for his fall from grace. And outside of prison walls, Hernandez, the football player, was mostly forgotten. It wasn't all bad for Hernandez, however. If anything, he was finally free to express his own sexuality freely. He entered into a romantic relationship with a fellow inmate and even came out to his mother. But Hernandez's legal woes were not over. He faced a second murder trial, this time for the double homicide that he and Alexander Bradley committed in the summer of 2012. That trial began on March 3rd, 2017. Alexander Bradley was again the prosecution's star witness, and he had made a deal to avoid his own murder charges. All he had to do was testify against his former friend. This time, the case against Hernandez for the double homicide was significantly weaker than it was in the Odin Lloyd murder trial, as it relied almost solely on Alexander Bradley's testimony. Hernandez's defense was also stronger. He'd hired a prominent Miami lawyer who successfully discredited Alexander Bradley, painting him as a vengeful criminal who couldn't be trusted. Hernandez seemed calmer during this second trial. The stakes were much lower. After all, he was already sentenced to life imprisonment. This was more a matter of pride. On April 14, 2017, Aaron Hernandez once again stood in court to hear a verdict. But this time, the jury found him not guilty. Hernandez was moved to tears. He looked back to his fiancée, Shayana Jenkins, and his now five-year-old daughter sitting in the courtroom and blew them a kiss. He returned to the Sousa Baranowski Correctional Facility with an extra spring in his step. He still faced the rest of his life in prison, but he'd beaten the final charge against him and felt liberated. Guards and other inmates were surprised by Hernandez's sudden jovial mood. But it wouldn't last long. At some point over the next couple days, reality set in for Hernandez. The dark thought that he would spend the rest of his life surrounded by those same prison bars. On the evening of April 18th, four days after his acquittal, Hernandez made his usual phone calls. None of the people he spoke to sensed that anything was amiss. His final call was to his fiancée. At 8 p.m., Hernandez said goodnight to her and walked back to his cell. Alone in his cell, Hernandez wrote four short letters. One to his lawyer to thank him for representing him, one to his daughter, 
one to his fiancée, and one to Kyle Kennedy, his closest friend and alleged lover in prison. In his letter to his fiancée, he promised that he would see her and his daughter again in heaven or another timeless realm. Hernandez sliced open a finger and drew a mural on the cell wall in his own blood, a depiction of the all-seeing eye of God within a pyramid. Below the pyramid, in a bizarre and unexplained note, Hernandez scrawled the word Illuminati. He then wrote the words John 3.16 on his forehead in red ink, opened the Bible to that verse, and left it laid on the ground next to the letters. Next, he covered the floor of his cell in shampoo and jammed cardboard in the door. And finally, sometime after 1 a.m., Hernandez stripped naked, wrapped a bedsheet around his neck, and hanged himself. At 3.05 a.m., a prison guard noticed that the opening to Hernandez's door was covered by a sheet. He called out to Hernandez, but heard no answer. So the guard reached in, pulled down the sheet, and saw Hernandez's body hanging from the bars on the window. The guards retrieved the keys to the cell, but struggled to open the door, jammed by cardboard. Once inside, getting to Hernandez's body was even more difficult thanks to the shampoo covering the floor. After cutting him down, the guards, unsure if he was still alive, performed chest compressions until the paramedics arrived. They brought Hernandez to the hospital, but at 4.07 a.m., Aaron Hernandez was officially declared dead. He was 27 years old. The media reaction was deeply polarized. Many celebrated the death of an unrepentant murderer. But some former teammates and sports personalities mourned his passing as the final note in a tragedy and wondered why he would have taken his life. Maybe prompted by her own disbelief, his mother agreed to donate his brain to a team of researchers studying chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. CTE is a progressive degenerative brain disease caused by repetitive head trauma, the kind that football players face on a daily basis. The disease, in its early stages, causes mood swings, behavioral problems, aggression, memory loss, and paranoia, all of which were clearly exhibited by Aaron Hernandez. The research lab was startled by what they found. Hernandez didn't just have some damage. His brain had been ravaged by CTE. They found dark spots, shrunken areas, numerous microbleeds, and a completely damaged frontal lobe, the part of the brain that helps with decision-making and impulse control. According to Dr. Ann McKee, Hernandez had the worst case of CTE ever seen in someone his age. The extent of Hernandez's brain trauma baffled doctors in the media. Hernandez had only suffered two recorded concussions, one in high school and one with the Patriots in 2012. But CTE isn't solely caused by concussions. It's also caused by smaller subconcussive hits that cause small lesions in the brain. And as the small hits repeat, the lesions grow and cause serious trauma. Those types of hits are suffered by football players multiple times a play, countless times every practice and game, and they take their toll. 
In a study published in mid-2017, Boston University researchers found that CTE was present in 99% of brains of former NFL players, along with 91% of college football players and 21% of high school players. The Brain Bank's findings about Aaron Hernandez sparked immediate legal controversy. Many experts suggested that because Hernandez's behavior was so clearly influenced by his brain disease, he shouldn't have been convicted of murder. CTE and the game of football were to blame. Hernandez's fiance, believing that to be the case, sued the NFL for $20 million. Others remain less certain. CTE can't excuse or explain all of Hernandez's actions, nor do most former football players, even those who were eventually diagnosed with CTE, exhibit the violence that Hernandez did. It's more likely that CTE exacerbated any pre-existing conditions. Hernandez had never recovered from a turbulent childhood and the sudden death of his father. He'd had to repress his sexuality in the insular world of the football locker room, he surrounded himself with drug dealers and convicted violent gangbangers. When CTE began to severely affect him, he had no ability to cope, no way to handle his aggression, paranoia, and depression. So he killed others, then killed himself. Three weeks after his death, the state of Massachusetts was forced to vacate Aaron Hernandez's murder conviction due to a legal technicality. The family of Owen Lloyd appealed that decision to the state Supreme Court, who in the spring of 2019 ruled that the concept of abatement had no real legal basis. Hernandez's original conviction was reinstated. Back in the football world, the New England Patriots celebrated a Super Bowl victory. On February 5th, 2019, a parade through downtown Boston celebrated Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, and Rob Gronkowski. This was their third Super Bowl victory since Aaron Hernandez was cut from the team. Football had briefly celebrated Hernandez, then quickly moved on. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 